Hold on to your butts. Welcome to episode 34 of the Civil War Breakfast Club. I am your co-host, Mary. And joining me tonight with an awesome new sound microphone thingy is my co-host, Darren. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. No more rattling for me. Sorry, everybody. But anyway, we had some issues in the last one that I didn't know about until until afterwards. But anyway, yeah, it's pretty good. And um, this is uh, is a new ground for us here at the Old Breakfast Club, man. This took many, many takes for this intro. It was was about a million, actually. (laughs) So so there we go with that. So how's everything going? How's, uh, How's your week? It was good. How about you? Oh, it's been absolutely soft serving sunshine here in Cape Cod, as always, Mary. Nothing about happiness in the old uh, the old neighborhood. I thought we had a pretty good, really good podcast, and we had a really good live. We had a really good live, I thought. We did. Part. We did. We had um, the reason for the, uh, if anybody's noticed our tweets about this episode so far, uh, there's some Jurassic Park references because we actually had a discussion <laughs> about Jurassic Park. And we came away with Beauregard being Samuel, Samuel Jackson's Jackson, character. Because, you know, he's a... Uh, he woke up that day on April 7th, we're going to talk about, and uh, the world was different. He thought it was things were going really, really well. It turns out that um, he had a hold on to your butts moment as he realized that Don Buell and Lou Wallace had showed up. And we're going to talk about that in detail today. We're going to talk about the 7th. As we sit here, it is April 6th, I think, and it is the first day of the actual Battle of Shiloh from 1862. And we're going to talk about the second half of it, which is April 7th, and it's going to spill a little bit into April 8th. Not everybody knows it was an April 8th at Shiloh. Mary, a lot of people think it's just two days. No, I'm... Like, I often think of it as being just two days, but then when you read about Fallen Timbers, like, that is really the end of the Battle of Shiloh, at least just in my opinion it is. But, hold on to your butts. Hold on to your butts. Before we get into the episode, what are we drinking tonight? Oh, that's right. So, uh, since we're doing Shiloh, I'm drinking Northern Lights by 10 Bents Beer, because it has a little Angel Glow can. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. I'm drinking it again out of my Unconditional Surrender U.S. Grant mug, because he is in this episode very much so and what about what about yourself well i stopped at the Lickbo on my way home today shocking and jurassic ipa and i saw that and i'm like that's perfect um and then i am drinking it out of my james a garfield mug which i him he was was here he He was was, he was at this battle a lot of people a lot of people associate him with the battle of chickamauga but uh he was actually at this battle as well absolutely was he absolutely was so we're going to talk about this have some fun with this one before we get going with the with day two i guess we got to go back into the way back machine from last week Mm -hmm. and talk about the original part of the battles but we'll start off right at the end but in a nutshell basically you have u.s grant who's going to be moving south down the tennessee river and he's going to be having to run into a force led by Beauregard, pgt Beauregard. we call Beauregard here yeah. at the old breakfast club for obvious reasons they're going to meet in corinth they're going to bring the, uh, the armies together they're going to um, bring in four core i uh, come take that back three core was that was that four core seven years ago mary <laughs> but you had five three core about a million about, you know about a million <laughs> leonidas pike braxton bragg and william hardeep Actually, there were four court. You got a couple of Breckridge in there too. So yeah, remember three there, in so. the front, one in the rear, one in the back. We got a little dusty <laughs> here. But who? The Confederates are bringing this Southern Army together because the, the things are going really, really bad in the West. So they need to stem this tide after losing Fort Henry, Fort Donaldson. 
Mill Springs, Pea Ridge. There's so much crap going on in the West. What Jeff Davis wants to do is he wants to bring in Albert Sidney Johnson, consolidate the army of the Army of the Mississippi with about 40,000 guys, and they're going to try to slow down this freight train that is the Army of the Tennessee with U.S. Grant. And so they're going to meet at Corinth, and they're going to do their best, and they're going to get the best of Grant in the Army on that first day. We've mm-hmm. talked a lot about the episode. If you can make it through the rattling, you'll be able to hear about what happened. But the way it's going to work is there's going to be a, an attack that's going to ultimately screw up in a lot of ways for the South. Again, there's so much communication issues with that battle. Beauregard's plan was to attack the, the Union left, which really doesn't happen because he spends most of his time on the Union right in a place called the Hornet's Nest. And by the time they are able to go around that Union left, things just fall apart. Rebs are out of gas, but they do push them back. They spend a good couple hours in that Hornet's Nest through artillery the, by Daniel Ruggles. They push Grant and Sherman and all those guys back. And as the night falls on April 6th, the Rebs are feeling pretty good about themselves. Mm -hmm. So Grant's been pushed back to Pittsburgh Landing. You know, there's all kinds of rain. And we talk about this all the time with the rain. But rain is falling on the battlefield. There's lightning strikes and it's lighting up the battlefield. And it's illuminating the dead and the injured. This talks of the soldiers and their moans. It's just it's just just a real shitty situation. But this is the first time a lot of these guys have seen this. A lot of these soldiers are green, but they've never seen a battle like this. These are the bloodiest two days in American history to to this point when it's all said and done. And a lot of them are, you know, it's the first time, as you said, that they've ever seen anything this horrific. And it's what like, you know, Grant at the end of the battle, like he's like, oh, shit, this is not going to be like a short term thing. Like we're not going to have this wrapped up at the end of the year at all. This is going to this is going to drag out if this is how these guys are going to be fighting with us. Right. There was a Union soldier who had a quote. He said the ground had opened up and spit up hell, which sounds a lot like my work day today. But that's exactly what the soldiers said. They've seen a lot of stuff go on that they hadn't seen mm-hmm. before. That also sounds um, like a the, Tuesday night with me. Oh, any day that ends the why. But during the <gasps> night of okay. April 6th, said, okay. during the night uh, of April 6th, the Union is going to bombard the rebel positions with artillery from the boats, from U.S. Uh, Lexington and the Tyler. It's more of a psychological thing than anything. There's not really much damage being done, but it's keeping them up. It's just hearing them, just this, this artillery coming in. But the biggest issue the Rebs have, and this is one of those whistling by the graveyard things, they pretend mm-hmm. they don't. Nathan Bedford Forrest, always a fun lover, Mary, he's going to take a ride up the, the Tennessee River, and he's going to see a bunch of boats coming in. And on these boats is going to be the late-arriving Don Carlos Buell and his army of the Ohio. They're going to start driving Pittsburgh landings with about 20,000 guys. Also, Lou Wallace is going to be showing up as well. Lou Wallace, the third division. He's going to have three brigades, Morgan Smith, John Thayer, and Charles Whitesley. But it's going to add a, about 24,000 guys, and more importantly, fresh guys, into this battlefield. The Rebs are feeling pretty good. Beauregard writes that letter back to Jefferson Davis saying that they won the day. But again, I think realistically speaking, and we'll talk about this in a few minutes, a lot of the soldiers are starting to hear rumors of these reinforcements coming. Yeah. And they they know they're in for it the next day. Yeah. Well, Forrest, like he sees them and he, tra- he tries to go find where Beauregard is. And he stops at Patrick Claiborne's camp where where Sherman had actually been the, the day before. And he's looking for him. And then they got talking and Forrest basically tells Claiborne, we're fucked. <laughs> we're fucked because there's not so many words. There's, there's, re- there's reinforcements arriving. And the thing with these reinforcements that are arriving, it's kind of in a way it's comical because they're arriving at night and they can't see anything. So Buell's men, they're arriving and they're actually starting to walk over these men that are sleeping. So it's kind of like me stumbling around on a Saturday night, I guess. 
Yeah, but you know, you probably don't. I'm sure he told somebody he was where he was. That's <laughs> so that they're stumbling around, and one soldier said that um, there is a horse loose in camp. He just passed right over us, and believe, believe he broke some of my ribs. And Buell's men also run into trees in the darkness, so it's just a real shit show to get them there. But they mm-hmm. all arrive at the battlefield by about 4 a.m. and they start getting positioned into their lines to renew the battle in the morning. Lou Wallace has arrived a little bit earlier at about six o'clock, and he's going to be on the extreme right with Grant occupying the right as well. And then Buell will be the center and the left. He rolls in fashionably late, probably on his chariot, probably broke a broke a <laughs> wheel, probably about because seven hours late. But I mean, the biggest thing the Rebs are kind of ignoring is the elephant in the room. I don't mean Sedgwick, okay, is the death of Albert Sidney Johnson the day before, which arguably is the big, the greatest death of the highest ranking general in the Civil War. Yep. We talk about that in the live, you know, yep. speaking of Cedric. Albert Sidney Johnson is going to He's going to be in that duel. He's going to get shot earlier. He's going to numb his legs. So he's going to take a ball behind his right knee and he's going to bleed to death. An interesting guy, you know, he, you know, so, you know, he ultimately dies and, you know, he's going to be buried in Materi Cemetery in New Orleans. Sherman later, he's going to, is, is going to tell him he can't have military honors for his funeral. He can't because he's a freaking traitor. So he gets buried like a regular guy. Beast Butler, okay, Benjamin Butler digs him up. Do you know this story? No. They dig him, his body up. Because he hears a rumor he's buried with treasure, which it wasn't. Oh <laughs> so my god! They, so they dig up Johnston. He finally eventually gets buried. I mean, he gets buried where he is. But his pallbearers include you know James Longstreet, Richard Taylor, John Bill Hood, Braxton Bragg, Beauregard, Simon, Balver Buckner, and so it ends up being a big fiasco. But his post-death kind of like Lincoln's body kind of is up and down over and over, over oh again. Oh my god! Um, finally gets buried. I think he's buried. He gets buried in Texas. I think. Yeah, ultimately. I think that's where and he's I, buried. And, and, and there was concerns about that because during the funeral texas was the one state that the union never really won a big battle in yeah and they weren't sure like they thought the war was going to be over and it just it just it was a, it was a big fiasco when he finally got buried at like in 1867 so but that's a big loss for them i mean that we talked before about the mm-hmm. impact of his death yeah about how it took away something from the future with the west you mentioned don carlos buell so he's going to show up and he's fashionably friggin' late you know he takes the overland route down through savannah doesn't take the boat takes him 22 days instead of Instead of freaking nine. Interesting dude, Ohio guy, naturally, like half of these guys are. Your West favorite Point, state, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, West Point class of 1841 finished 32nd of 52, noted significantly for his high demerits and discipline problems. So it sounded like a certain kid from Waltham High back in the day, remained nameless. You know, he fought in Mexico under Zachary Taylor and Winfield Scott. He was a close friend of George McClellan, Mary. Mm-hmm. And he was, when he was in Washington, he, was, he, he basically ended up going to, uh, into Kentucky. He got sent to Kentucky by, by McClellan. He replaced Sherman in command of the Army of the Ohio. It was funny because, you know, he, we talked, we joke about the whole tardy thing, right? He was criticized for being slow, even back then, by McClellan, which has got irony written all over. But well, when you take 22 one. days to get somewhere, that's like waiting for a certain individual that says 15 minutes. Oh, okay. <laughs> Gee, whoa. Yeah, horse you rode in on. <laughs> So, so going back to this, going back to the early of April 7th, Grant's going to counterattack early the next morning. He decides, you know, he's got his guys. There's that famous story where, you know, Sherman comes up to him and says, we've had the devil's own day. And Sherman comes back. Grant comes back and says, well, lick him tomorrow, though. Beauregard's doing, like we said, he does that victory lap, which is going to, and I think this is important as we talk about this day, about how he reacts during this day. You know, he writes a letter to Jefferson Davis. We this morning attacked the enemy 
uh, in strong position after a severe battle of 10 hours gained a complete victory, driving the enemy from every position. Okay, so you send that letter off. So now they're getting this, everyone in Richmond's all excited. But Forrest has that recon. He goes to Tennessee or sees those troops and he knows they're probably going to be in Forrest. Grant and Buell, they're going to attack at dawn. They have this battle plan. So like Lionel Richie, they were up all night long, Mary, planning this thing. And so they're going to put place these troops in a way that's going to ultimately put the fresh troops in front. Now, this was the mistake that Grant made the day before, mm -hmm. right? He put his weakest troops in the front and he put his strongest troops in the back. Yeah, and Claiborne, awaken right. Claiborne awakens that morning to the realization that, yes, indeed, Forrest was right and the reinforcements have arrived and Hardy's going to order him to advance along the bank road. And oh. his, br his brigade had been really reduced the day before. So he had started April the 6th with 2,700 guys. On dawn of the 7th, when he wakes up, he's down to just 800. And he said, my brigade was sadly reduced. Hundreds of my best men were dead or in hospitals. So keep in mind, like unlike the Union, the Confederates have not had reinforcements. Van Dorn is miles away at this point, And Beauregard is holding out hope that he's going to arrive, you know, but I think he stopped at the bang barn. Oh, well, I guess he probably did. Maybe we'll see. <laughs> Who knows? But so Grant, you know, you just say he's going to, you, know, you referenced earlier, he's going to put Lou Wallace's arriving third division on that Union far right. Yeah. So that's what they're going to be because that's pretty much where they're going to arrive from over that Snake Creek, right? Yeah. He's going to start with an, with an artillery attack on on a guy named Captain Ketchman, uh, Ketchum's battery from Ruggles' division, who's camped on McClernand's old camp that previous morning. Sherman's fifth division is going to be put on, on Wallace's left, followed by McLaren's first on the right, with the rest of w, William W. Wallace's second division, who's under control now of James Tuttle because Wallace went up the spout the day before, mm -hmm. as they say. Yeah, he didn't make it. Well, he's not um, quite dead he, yet. He Well, he's. they think he's dead. He's yeah. pretty much. But then they're going to put Frobert's 4th Division east, and they're going to extend to that river. Sherman's 5th Division is going to be along that Harrisburg-Savannah Road, but they're going to be the second line. They're going to be like the one that's going to be coming in second, mm -hmm. right? Because Buell's Fresh Army of the Ohio is going to be in front, right? They're going to have on the Union left side a guy named William Bull Nelson. We've talked about him a couple different podcasts yeah. off and on from Kentucky. He was that dude who got killed by Jefferson C. Davis in the hotel yep. in November of 60 later that year for lying <laughs> he got shot in the <laughs> hotel you know so luckily for the union Jefferson C. Davis didn't get him yet because he was instrumental in this battle he's gonna be placed on the union left he's gonna have Thomas Crittenden's fifth division on his right with Alexander McCook's second division kind of in the middle he's gonna be kind of there but they got a strong line so you've got really two strong lines that are gonna extend Nelson's gonna move south he's gonna be the first one who's gonna be going and he's gonna be along that river near that peach orchard that Sarah Bell peach orchard we mm -hmm. talked about last week and McCook and Crittenden are gonna begin sort of moving inland along that Corinth road that kind of cuts along right Buell's gonna have a mile long line his left is gonna be anchored on that 10 Tennessee River, and his right's going to be along the junction at Corinth, uh, Hamburg, and uh, Savannah Road. So he's in a really good position. Grant's going to have 45,000 guys pretty much ready to go. But most important, Mary, is a ha almost a half of them are fresh. They haven't fought. And that's going to be huge for the yep. Union going forward. Yeah, because like we said, the Confederates have no fresh troops. These are guys that had fought the day before, and they only had a certain number of rations with them, and they were running out. So some of them didn't eat that night. This army's not in very good shape at all. Confederate lines, I mean, you remember from, from the day before, yeah. they all got intermingled. And you know, before Johnson yeah. got killed, that's right. yeah. he, 
he, he arranged them into those four grids, kind of like a zone defensive type thing. The next morning, they're still screwed up. And this is a mistake that Beauregard makes, is he mm-hmm. doesn't reorganize that well. The next morning, they're still all intermingled. You've got brigades and different corps, and they're all over the place. It's very similar to what happens Pro- at Chickamauga, actually, how Bragg did the lines there. They get all like commingled in together, so they're just completely scattered, and they basically slept where they had been fighting. That, that's not unusual, mean. but but this the it's, you know Johns is dead. The corps are all spread out. Leonidas Polk's first corps is completely missing. No one knows where the hell they mm-hmm. are. You know Charles Clark and Benjamin Cheatham, or they can't find them. It takes an aid two hours to find that whole corps, and they're about four miles away from the river. They they end up going way south. I don't know where the hell they were, what they where they were doing. But it took a while to find them. You know, Beauregard's he's trying to do what he can to make to reorganize the lines because they're all mixed up. The only corps that has all of their brigades together is John Breckenridge, ironically, because yeah. he was the reserve guy. Yeah. He was the only one who had him, Hardy, Bragg, Polk. They're all commanding mixed up brigades along a three mile front, which is like herding frigging cats yeah. at this point. Yeah, it is. Right. And around 830 is when the attack happens. And the heaviest fighting's on the Union left where Nelson is engaged, who um, you mentioned a, little, a few minutes ago. And then mm-hmm. around 930, there's uh, fighting in the area of the Hornet's Nest again. The way Claiborne is positioned, he's going to have his left flank in the air. So this is like kind of, this is something that happens to O.O. Howard at Chancellorsville. Oh. He's left hanging in there. There's our O.O. reference. Look at me. Wow. Getting in the O.O. It's my O.O. surprise face. <laughs> Claiborne, and this is an example of how mixed up they are. So Claiborne is actually, his commander is technically Hardy. He gets an order from Bragg that he, well, there basically is this artillery duel going on between the Union and the Confederates. The orders that he gets are to move up. And Claiborne is not one to ever question orders at all. But in this case, he's he's having a kind of what the shit with this. I think he'd be fucking Jesus. Yeah. That's exactly what he was said, actually. And he questions it because he's completely without support and he's going to be outflanked on the left. And he's said, I would be destroyed if I advanced so he has to halt what he's doing because of this federal artillery because it's just becoming so insane some of his men end up getting killed by falling tree limbs because keep Mm -hmm. in mind like the terrain the terrain of shiloh is one reason why the it's not just how johnson has moved the men the day before it's also the train because remember when claiborne was advancing the day before his brigade gets separated so one goes off in one direction one goes off in the other so it's very very chaotic and it's the same way as the day before. Well, it's all screwed up. I mean, I mean, Beauregard is going to do his best. He's going to range his line about a mile from the Tennessee River, northwest to southeast, okay? But again, you have different guys. So you've got about, tw- about 30,000 guys, give or take, probably a little bit less at this point. Bragg, Polk, Breckenridge, and Hardy is the way it's going to go. And like you said, Breckenridge is going to be near that, near that hornet's nest. But they're all going to be spread out. But, but the troops know something's up. They just do. There's a quote by a guy named A.H. Mecklen. And he says, I began to have my doubts as to the outcome of this battle. I knew the enemy was reinforced and stoutly. So say what you mean about that, stoutly. That's been reenactricized pants, maybe. Who knows? But, <laughs> but but they knew that something was up. When the feds did attack, to your point, you mentioned Nelson attacking, but you're going to have Wallace attacking too on that Union right. Yeah. They're going to basically attacking the ends. And they attack quick. There was a Louisiana private who said, they appeared to me like ants in the nest. The more we fired upon them, the more they swarmed. Lots of bugs in this one with hornets and ants and all kinds of stuff. How are you not having a panic attack? I'm not afraid of those. I'm a bee. What about Bee Ridge? I don't remember Bee Ridge. Anyway, as this goes on, you're going to have this wave of Yankees, right? There's a guy guy named Thomas Robinson. He's going to say, at daybreak, as as the pickets came rushing in, a murderous fire. And the first thing we knew was we were surrounded by six or seven regiments of Yankees. 
So they were facing Wallace's third division, these guys. This is the fourth Louisiana. These was Gibbons guys. They were all mixed up too. So Nelson, he's going to lead his fourth division on that Union left down that Hamburg-Savannah road. So they're going to get going a little bit early. They finally get going. You know, it's, you mentioned about 10 o'clock. It's, it's arguable what time it was. But they are going to arrive at, the, at a place called the Widow Wickers Field. And William Hayes' 19th Brigade is going to get there. And they're going to get hit pretty quickly by James Chalmers' troops under Bragg, who was with Hardy's troops, because that's how screwed up it was. Mm-hmm. But they're going to get hit. They're going to get hit pretty good because up to that point, there was zero resistance. They were moving right along. Chalmers is going to block that first federal advance. Those guys had come up from where David Stewart's camp was from the, day, the previous day. They had advanced back, but that's where Chalmers and those guys were. But they're going to block them at that point. That's going to go on about an hour, hour and a half or so. And both sides are trying to get reinforcements. This is on that Union left now where mm-hmm. that peach orchard is, right? Thomas Crittenden, Alexander McCook's divisions, they're going to be coming up behind Nelson on his right. And they're going to be advancing towards that hornet's nest and that thicket and that's where they're going to kind of go so by 10 o'clock in the morning shit's on i mean they're they're totally engaged at that peach orchard that's the area right where johnson had gotten killed the day before yeah also as this is going on lou wallace is fighting preston pond's brigade who's under ruggles at the at, uh, at jones field it's kind of going on at the same time pond's going to basically disappear he's going to leave the dance floor as you say he's going to slide to the raft <laughs> is what he's going to do okay because he's going to end up to re- support hardy and on that other side on, on, to fight buell's guys because he's got nelson coming down so pond is going to basically go to the right to help support them but what that's going to do it's going to open an opportunity for wallace to keep moving forward right mm-hmm. so wallace is going to move forward into that northern end of jones field randall gibbon he's going to be there in, in who's going to be coming up to move up with randall gibbon to slow him down is the great sterling a.m wood <laughs> who is going to be rising to the occasion Mary. <laughs> Okay. And so they're going to slow down that Wallace's advance into Jones Field. So this is kind of all going on. Wallace does get slowed. I mean, he does because mm-hmm. he's going to deal with these guys. He's going to wait for support that's coming up on the backside from our friend William T. Sherman yep. and McLaren's divisions who are going to be on his left. So, so you can see what's going on. This is already going to be kind of a mess. Uh, Wood and Gibbon are going to counterattack Wallace. Ruggles is going to push forward, but they're going to get pushed back pretty quick. I mean, the numbers tell the story with all these battles. Rebs are going to get pushed back by John Mayer's and Morgan's. John Thayer, John Mayers, Oof. John John Thayer's, out of that one out. <laughs> but John Th- John, John Thayer's Morgan Smith's brigades are going to be ultimately going to do that. So you got two sides on on the left and the right. You've got you've got action that's going. And this is actually the part where so getting later into the battle, closer to probably around one o'clock, Beauregard actually ends up getting involved in the battle he does he's gonna come later on left but you know buell at this time he's still doing his thing he's gonna before he gets there, he's gonna advance on that sarah bell's peach orchard like we said before and he's gonna hit hardy's guys right along that hamburg purdy road mm-hmm. the 22nd brigade under colonel sanders bruce just like saying the name <laughs> colonel sanders <clears throat> you wonder how long it Chicken. took him to get across across the road who knows but colonel sanders bruce is gonna be there under nelson and he's gonna attack across that sarah bell field and they're gonna get pushed back pretty quickly you know who's gonna push them back Mary on the Confederate side is that Washington Louisiana artillery mm-hmm. who we talked about from Gettysburg yeah. right they were the ones who fired those first signals that they pick a charge um, but they're in a place called Davis Wheatfield. So they're gonna those guns are gonna basically push them back. Hardy's gonna counterattack. This is where John Bowen gets involved under, under Breckenridge. They're gonna get pushed back quickly to Hamburg Purdy Road again. And this whole thing's a mess. There's so much moving parts with this, but Hayes' brigade is gonna get pushed back. Who's gonna join the fray? It's it's kind of like a you know, this is your life. William Suey Smith's gonna show up, Mary. Oh God. From the, from, from the fourth from the 14th Brigade on the Crittenden. <laughs> 
So he's going to help some of Hazen with those advances. He's going to ultimately be there as, as well. And they're going to rush into that Davis we feel over on that Washington artillery. So good for Suey. So, so yeah. Suey and Sherman back together again before, before the march. Before what happens at Meridian. And Meridian. Meridian. So <laughs> Louisiana troops and 19th Louisiana is going to uh, is going to basically move up and so, uh, to help support those artilleries, the Washington artillery. They're going to retake those batteries. There's some hand-to-hand combat in that Davis Wheatfield. But there's a lot of ebb and flow to this. It's going back and forth mm-hmm. and back and forth. Nelson's eventually going to fall back, and he's going to regroup in that Widow Wickersfield after Breckenridge and Hardy end up on both sides of his flank. So they're going to, he's going to find himself getting surrounded. So he's going to back off. And what they want to do is kind of reform. Breckenridge is going to be at Hardy's left. They're going to push Crittenden back in that hornet's nest thicket as well with Smith. But what they want to do is just going on, heading on to that early afternoon, to yeah. your point, is the Union now is pushed forward. They got pushed back. They're going to push forward, but they realize there's something. They have an opportunity here, right? Just like Lee in the movie. We have an opportunity here. So, but they need to reform because what they don't want to do is end up like the Rebs did the day before and yeah. end up all over the place. Lisa, we got them. We think we know what we're doing, but let's just catch our breath. Let's just touch base, make sure everything's good. So as we head into the afternoon, the Union knows where the Rebs are. They know where they're going to attack, but now they get a chance to catch their breath and reset, which is going to be huge going into the afternoon. Exactly. And this is at the time that Beauregard finds out that Van Dorn ain't making it. He's still miles away and he's not going to make it. So he's not going to have those reinforcements. And he had planned, if Van Dorn was there, to do a flank attack, which, if you think about it, could have been, gave the Union a run for their money. Like, they know they've got it with their numbers right now, because Beauregard's only got 20,000 troops. But, you know, this is a thing that, you know, what if Van Dorn had actually uh, not stopped at the bang barn or whatever the fuck he was up to and managed well, to get there it's quickly, that, what, you know? what? What if Meade was a Gettysburg question? Same question we always have. <laughs> what? See, <laughs> <laughs> paying attention. <laughs> But, but a lot of the, the numbers usually do t- dictate the stories with these. Mm-hmm. And we talked before at the beginning about the losses the Rebs had. Yeah. Not having Van Dorn was a huge, huge loss for that. But you know what, though? They needed they needed bodies. Early afternoon, Crittenden's 5th Division is going to reform. And they're going to attack again. You know, Breckenridge with McCook on his right side. They're going to move across that, that place called Duncan's Field. And they're going to break through Crittenden's line. There's going to be crazy casualties. There's going to be heavy casualties around this time. Many soldiers just leave the dance floor themselves. They say the hell with this. This is stupid, which is going to be a common theme as the afternoon goes on. But the Yankees are pushing south now. They're, they're a steamroller. They're just going south. The Rebs are going to do their best. Nelson, who's got reinforced, reinforced and he's caught his breath, and he's, he's ready to go. Bull Nelson. Bull the man, Mary. Bull. That's why they call him Bull. So he's a big guy. He's moving south again, and he's going to attack into that Sarah Bell field again, that intersection of the Savannah and Hamburg and Purdy Road. And as the early afternoon goes on, Hardy is going to be driven back by Nelson into that into Prentice's old campsite. So this is how far they're getting, right? They're moving. They're, they must be moving pretty quick. Um, well, he was a bull, so he's probably moving pretty, pretty fast, you know. But the Rebs are falling back, and they're retreating south towards Shiloh Church now. So they're moving back. The Rebs just can't do it anymore, and they're giving up. On the Union right, Bragg and Polk are trying to hold back Sherman, Hurlbutt, and uh, McClernand. And they're, they're eventually going to retreat from Jones Field because they just, they just can't do it. And, you know, Beauregard's sitting at his headquarters at Shiloh Church. He sees what's going on. Yep. And to your point, he's, he's like, well... And I think this is where it's important. He had sent that telegram the night before, so he couldn't lose. He couldn't. Yeah, he's he feeling just, he just the couldn't. same pressure that Johnson was feeling the day before with, you think about it, like the night before Shiloh, like Beauregard is saying to, to Johnson, we can't attack, like we've lost the element of surprise, you know, and Johnson's like, nope, we have to. And it was kind of a like a do or die thing for Johnston and I mean yeah Johnston ends up dying but he had to because keep in mind that the Confederates have lost you know Henry and Donaldson they've lost
lost Pea Ridge, they need a victory. As you said, to your point, like Beauregard sent this telegram basically saying, we fucking got it. And now he's like seeing his troops getting pushed back and he has this oh shit moment. This is a part of the battle that I don't think it's talked a lot about what Beauregard does here. I think there's this thought that he is back most of the time and not involved. He gets out and he nearly pulls an Albert Sidney Johnston. Well, I, you know, I, and I think we'll talk about that, but I think that's what he wanted. To be totally honest, we don't, we like, again, this is the what if thing we do. I think he, he thought in his mind, and this is just me spitballing here, I think he thought if he rode on front and got taken out, he'd look better in the end. Because if he survived in this, well, battle fell in his face. I think he knew he was done. Yeah. So I think it was one of those, I have to go all out. If I don't make it, so be it. So he's sitting at Shiloh Church and he's on his phone. He's texting people because he needs people. So he's frantically trying to set up a defensive line in a place called Water Oaks Pond. Okay. And just west of the Shiloh Church, the Rebs' lines are unraveling right in front of him at this point. So as the afternoon goes on, the fighting's heavy. Hardy on that rebel right, he's falling back. The strong point of the rebel line is still on the left side where Owl Creek is. There's a guy named Lovell Brousseau in the 4th Brigade. He's going to attack across a place called Wolf Fields. Every one of these attacks is short-term. You hit and then you fall back and that's it. Sherman and Wallace are going to continue to press the, uh, that rebel left flank as well. The Federals are driving south. I mean, they're moving fast and fast. They're, they're moving faster than you going to the liquor store on a Friday afternoon. That's how fast they're moving. So they're, they're, they're real. They're really chugging what are you along. talking about? I go in every day and then it's in a while. I know, I know. Beauregard calls on uh, Preston Ponds. You've talked about him before. His brigade, he's got two regiments and he says, come to Shallow Church and, you know, come to Shallow Church. It'll be fun. Come on. It'll be a good time. Bring along. <laughs> There's candy. Yeah, look at this candy. We're going to we're going to hit some guys. We have some candy. So he wants to attack there, you know. And then there's that story, you know, that Robert Russell. He gets quoted a lot through a lot of these stories. But he said, General Beauregard, he bore the colors in front of the rebel line under fire of the enemy, right? So he's sitting there, literally trying to rally the troops. To your point. And I don't know if it was a death wish or if it was just a I have to be seen today, you know, type of type of thing. My people but, need me. No. You know, but he was exactly, but he was recklessly exposing himself. He once was again. very much. He goes out there and he actually grabs a couple of the flags. And one of his staff, Colonel Thompson, said he sees the banners of two different regiments and led them forward in the face of enemy fire. Thompson at this point is, as you said, these troops are beginning to realize like we're fucked. Thompson said that I became convinced that our troops were too much exhausted to make vigorous resistance. So Thompson goes to plead with Beauregard saying, you should expose yourself no further, but to retire from Shiloh Church in good order. And you've got to wonder if that's like they're thinking, fuck, like we lost Albert Sidney Johnston. We don't need to lose this guy because um, Mm -hmm. when I was doing the research for this, when you think about it back at Pea Ridge and what happened there. And how the command structure fell because of, you know, the commanders getting taken out and then there being poor communication. Like there's a lot of Shiloh that is very similar to Pea Ridge with these commanders recklessly exposing themselves, as you say. That's what happened to those two Confederate commanders at Pea Ridge. They get taken out and nobody knows. Mm -hmm. And everything just goes into chaos. And that's probably why one of the reasons they lost the battle. But, you know, Thompson's recognizing like whatever the fuck Beauregard's doing. And who knows how adrenaline plays into this. Like he might just be thinking like, yeah, I can go out in front and they'll rally behind me. Beauregard, to his defense, okay, he kept trying. 
So even he's trying to rally his troops. His troops look at him going, seriously, go screw. We're not doing this, right? But he's still trying. He tries one last counter, one last counterattack. Mm-hmm. He has a little bit of success in the feds. He pushes them back into that water oaks pond. He forces McCook back a little bit. And this is funny, too, because you know who else is personally directing troops here to Mary is Grant, yeah. right? He's going to direct a guy named James Veach from the 2nd Brigade to Hurlbut to help stabilize that falling Union line as they're going to hit on their right flank. So, so it's kind of the dueling commanders here. Yeah. The Rebs are done here. They're done. They're completely oh. shift, you know. And so, Russell, we talked before, Russell says, human endurance can stand no longer against such odds and our forces were compelled to fall back. So they knew they were done. You could be the greatest motivator in the world when you're done and you see, because now this is when Beauregard says, you know something? Forrest was saying something about reinforcements and I, I think he might have been right. Yeah. Right. So he's realizing now that the reinforcements he heard rumors about the soldiers were all talking about. Yep, they were right. They got they got guys. They got Buell's guys now. And so he decides, you know what? Fuck the hell out of this. Yeah. And one of the things that you know, makes him decide it is another member of his staff, Colonel Jordan, uh, comes up to him and says, like, are we not like a lump of sugar thoroughly soaked with water yet preserving its original shape, though ready to dissolve? Would it not be judicious to get away with what we have? You know what? Like, let, let's get out now. The fighting here has been, it's been really crazy. Like, there's one point where, where like, Claiborne has, like, he's followed those orders from Bragg and his men, they just get absolutely annihilated. And there's one part where he's occupying the reverse slope of a hill and he is kind of acting as a rear guard at this point. And the federal units advance across his front and he just, he keeps counterattacking and he temporarily does halt them. But finally, like, exhaustion sets in and he's got to fall back too. It, we'll talk about this in a few minutes, but he is pissed at Bragg. Well, <laughs> like, pissed. He, right. And so by three o'clock late, mid-afternoon or so, they realize they're done. So the Rebs are going to set up a defensive line under Breckenridge, south of Shiloh Church. She's going to basically have about 5,000 guys and 12 guns. And their job is to do the old 16th main thing, just buy us time, yeah. right? They're their sacrificial lambs. So they all have to hold up the Union guys for, for two hours, which is really impressive they do. And it does allow the Rebs to retreat. So if by 5 o'clock, Battle of Shiloh is officially over. Grant and Buell are going to capture all the land they lost the previous day. They're going to get it all. And it's going to be a huge turning point for this battle at, at that point going forward. It must have been a tough situation for Beauregard, though, because he had you know victory snatched from him. And he yeah. thought he had it. Go back to what we said before. It was what would have happened if they didn't have that rain on April 3rd and 4th and 5th? And they didn't have to wait till April 6th to start this. If they could have pushed and they could have done their plan, Buell wouldn't have arrived until the night of the 6th, no matter what, right? He exactly. was on like, the slow train. He wasn't going to get there. Lou Walls was chasing cavalry. He was, you know, chasing butterflies in the field somewhere for, forever. I mean, to their defense, they made it at the perfect, perfect time. They did. But you want to believe in divine intervention yeah. for the Federals. This is the battle. For yeah, you. just luck that this happened. Um, so one of the last divisions to come in, though, and kind of just before the rebels like really retreat around 3.30 or so, is Thomas J. Wood. And this is where Garfield is. And it's actually, he's leading a brigade, the 20th Brigade. He's going to try and go after the Confederate. But the funny thing about this is Garfield is his commander's Thomas J. Wood. And that's the guy that gets the unfortunate command from Garfield. 
Garfield. At Chickamauga. Yeah, that's funny how it is. But it's, Garfield, it's, just, it's just an interesting part of this battle. But, you know, you don't hear a lot about Garfield in the Civil War. You no. really don't. I mean, but, but, you know, he had a good quote that Garfield Society actually tweeted today, as a matter of fact, because mm. on my notes. But he says, the horrible sights I have witnessed I can never describe. No blaze of glory that flashes around the magnificent triumphs of war can ever atone for the horrors of the scene of carnage. And that was Garfield talking about Shiloh. You see a lot of these stories, a lot of these quotes. So night is going to fall on the 7th of April. And the Union, Union soldiers are settling in for camp for the night. And they start to see some weird stuff in the yeah. field, right? So they look at the field. They see soldiers in the field. And they see the injured and dying in the field. And they're glowing. And it would, be go, it would become to known as the angel's glow, and word spreads throughout the camps of this of this glowing. There are very religious people at the time, but the soldiers believe that it's it's actually God who had heard the pleas of these dying and injured soldiers to come and save them. Mm-hmm. I mean, what else are you going to think, right? So, um, and so the, this glow, though, it's funny. It was a long time mystery and all kinds of theories of what this glow thing was, and no one really know. Fast forward to 2001. Yep. There's a kid whose mother is a microbiologist. My old job. There's a bacteria in the soil. And I'm going to butcher this one, Mary. It's called Photocrotus luminitis. If you say that three times, Hagrid shows up, by the way, just out of curiosity. Okay. <laughs> I am not. I was re. I was like, <laughs> not even it's try. funny. I was actually reading the article before we recorded this. And I was going to, I meant to tell you, can you please pronounce this shit? Because I'm going to butcher <laughs> the fuck out of it like I do everything else. Photocrotus luminositis yeah, one more time a, and beetlejuice comes i'm gonna leave that alone it's a parasite but right it, it's it like it, it vomits it, it gives off a goal but it's funny because it's weird they think that it probably existed because the dampy ground and the rain and the mud that all fell because it can't survive in a human body it's too warm so yeah. they think as the bodies were cooling this bacteria was luminating. Yeah, so some of the soldiers got hypothermia. But the interesting thing about it is that when they did take these soldiers that obviously were still alive, the ones that had been glowing actually had a higher survival rate than the ones that hadn't been glowing. Because apparently this type of bacteria, I'm not even going to try and pronounce it, whatever it is, it killed off the bacteria that would have caused the infections. Right. So, you know what? Who's to say? Maybe it was the angels. Who knows? Maybe it was. But it did save quite a bit of lives yeah. in that night. And that must have been something. Because we talked before about, you know, the, the northern lights they mm-hmm. saw at Fredericksburg. And now you're seeing this. Uh, I, well, you saw this first was the timing. But but this type of thing must have been mind-numbing for these people to see. Think about you're a soldier and you see the most carnage, this horrible, horrible stuff. And now you see these bodies glowing. I mean, what the freaking hell? Yeah. The sun does come up the next day. It, believe it or not, it does. On April 8th, Sherman, his 5th Division, is, is going to go south, and they're going to do some run into a skirmish line with Nathan Bedford Forrest. Yeah. And again, they're just and doing a recon. They don't... Yeah, they just, this they is just, like yeah, Sherman's getting surprised again, you know? They just want to see if the Rebs are really retreating yeah. or they're setting up a defensive line. So they sent old Blingy down there to go check them out. They live up a place called Falling Timbers. It's about six miles south of Pittsburgh Landing. And like I said, they're trying to see what the scoop is. And Sherman runs into them, and he's, he's going to get beaten up by Forrest. And we, we we talk a lot, a lot about Forrest and Sherman. We'll talk more about that in details in a second. But Forrest is protecting the rear of the army as they're retreated. And he's going to get the best of Sherman with this one. Forrest is that great story where he's going to get stuck behind the Union lines. They're going to catch Forrest, but he grabs that soldier, throws him on the horse, and he yep. rides away. And they're shooting at him, and he throws the soldier off. And according to Shelby Foote, it was the last shot of the Battle of Shiloh. But it's a great story because he escapes. Yep. But it's isn't it funny, though, how as you look forward, we talk about like Meridian with yep. with 
with Suey Smith, right? Yeah. How these guys set up these rivalries, right? Oh, and there's a couple rivalries. I don't know there's one you want to talk mm-hmm. about that comes with Sherman out of this battle. Yeah. And there's no way to document what they really thought of these people. But you can sort of see based on previous experiences how, how they probably set up. Absolutely. The one with Forrest, definitely. And as you said, like, absolutely, the with the Meridian campaign, you can see that. And Sherman has that quote, too, saying, like, I don't care if it bankrupts the Treasury and how many fucking guys die. We need to get Nathan Bedford Forrest. But the other rivalry that begins here that doesn't get talked about a lot. And again, this is just my opinion. I'm reading between the lines, like what we do on this podcast. You know, it's just just an opinion from from what I see. This is where the rivalry between Claiborne and Sherman begins. And I don't think it was necessarily Claiborne thought of it that way. I think it was Claiborne was in Sherman's head as much as Forrest was in Sherman's head. Think about it. Like I was joking around today on Twitter a few times as well as on Facebook saying this is where Sherman gets Claiborne. Claiborne is the one to attack him the morning of April the 6th. Look throughout the rest of their history, Missionary Ridge, Kennesaw Mountain. Kennesaw Mountain was one of Sherman's rare frontal attacks. He is attacking right where Claiborne is. And I think by that point, he was like, fuck it, I'm going to get this guy because he's, you know, beat me down so much. And if you look at how some of these guys, how they fight, you can see the personal in it. Like we saw it with Five Forks as well between Sheridan and Warren. Like there is an element of mean girls in in these battles between these guys. And I do believe that as much as this is where Forrest and Sherman started their rivalry, this is also where the rivalry that doesn't get talked about much, but Claiborne and Sherman. I think Claiborne was in his head so much. Well, I think what this battle did, it it wasn't just personal at that level. It told the nation, both sides of this, that this was going to be a thing. This was not a quick little thing. We talked before, you know, last week with this, how most people thought this thing was going to be over quick. You know, Grant's talking about one more big battle, spike the ball, put these guys away. This is, you know, this Mm -hmm. is going to be done. Yeah. But in the North, um, the Northern papers were mortified at the casualty numbers. Now, these casualty numbers, I know you like to read them, but 13,047 Union, 10,679 casualties for the Confederates. That's 23,746. And it's very famous because it is more than all American wars at that point combined. It did not play well in the North. It, it didn't. So it didn't. Grant, who was the hero of Henry and Donaldson just two months before, is suddenly getting shit on by everybody in the North. They want him gone. And you know who's happy hearing that? Halleck's Halleck happy hearing is that. So- He's, right? he, he's behind that bush just kind of rubbing his he hands is. together. He's like, and, oh, yeah. And it's funny, like there, there's right. a newspaper article that comes out, you know, a few days after the battle that is saying like how great Grant was there. But then there's another one um, that comes out and it's absolutely just like scathing towards Grant and basically saying he was caught off guard and everything else. And that's where the rumors start to fly. But the other thing too is a lot of the soldiers that fought here, they are already blaming Grant before the positive newspaper article came out. But then of course, they're going to be even more so after this really negative one comes out. It was Whitelaw Reed, I think he was for um, wrote for the Cincinnati Gazette. He was the one that wrote it. Lieutenant Governor of Ohio, Benjamin Stanton, said that uh, Grant should be court-martialed or shot. So this starts putting a lot of pressure on Abraham Lincoln to get rid of Grant. And all he says is, I can't spare this man. He fights. He had his head up his hurl butt <laughs> on April 5th, getting because he didn't think this thing was going to start. But I think what really freaked the people out is, is the Northern people were like, you know, yeah, we want to win this. We don't want cash. We don't want blood cash. We want, this is not what we want. We just want them to stop. Just I think they realized this was more in the South. It, 
this thing is a complete, complete disaster. You know, Beauregard is going to retreat to Corinth. He's going to get beaten again by Grant Buell and John Pope's going to show up and beat him too. The big thing though is Albert Sidney Johnson's death, yeah. right? So he that's the huge loss out of this for the South. What that did is it denied the Confederacy a competent commander in the West to fight the Union. You know, it was, you know, Davis said he was the Southern, the South's greatest general. You know, so you're hearing he dies, you lose all this ground, you get beaten up to a pulp. So you can see how that is going to play. I think everybody was surprised at the carnage of Shiloh. And it was, it was the worst of humanity. Hand-to-hand fighting, death, artillery, the whole, it just, it was just brutal. You will, Ulysses Graham, he was, he was even surprised. You know, he, yeah. he has that quote, he says, I saw an open field in our possession on the second day over which the confederates had uh, had repeated char- charge during the day before i assume that the hornet's nest so covered with dead that it would be impossible that it would be possible to walk across the clearing in any direction stepping on dead bodies without a foot even touching the ground even they were surprised i think all of them were i'm sure they were they were very very happy to win but at the same time even though this was a little bit into the war i mean it's been a, a year since sumter right yeah. i think what this did is it shook the country to a point that this is something that's going to be really fucking bad right yeah. and you know i i you know i mentioned before i think on social media that quote that i always think about which with that was that one soldier says i was Never worse scared than I was at Shiloh. Yeah. And, and that's one that's one that I think a lot of these guys said. And yeah. a sad part is this was a tip of the iceberg compared to what was coming. Exactly. But I think this was a harbinger of what was to come. And I think both sides knew that whoever was going to win this war was going to be what was going to be a war of attrition. It was going to cost a lot of bodies. This was the first Shiloh was the first type of in, you know hint that this is what it was going to have to be. And that's why it's so famous today. I think it's it, it just mm-hmm. when you just it's one of those words like we said before Shiloh, Antietam, Gettysburg. You just say Shiloh and you it reminds you of death and carnage exactly. and misery. Yeah, and that's why that's why it's important, you know, and I've mentioned on our Facebook live and a few times just talking with you, you know, this was the battle where at the reunions after the war, the men would be talking and laughing and joking around about, you know, well, where were you? Where were you? You know, well, I was at this battle, but then one of them would speak up and say, I was at Shiloh, the room would just go silent. Because, you know, that was where it began. So you have Shiloh where it's kind of the oh shit moment. It's awakening America to how bad this is going to be. But then in September, you have Antietam and Antietam is absolute carnage as well. But the thing that adds adds to that is the fact that there are photographs of the bodies at Antietam. And that just is another bringing the reality home. Now you can just imagine what if there had been a photographer at Shiloh to capture the, if we could see the words of these soldiers, like what, what it looked like, like how hard, how much harder would it have been for the American people at that time to see the carnage? Because there's not, I don't think there's any photographs of the aftermath of Shiloh. Like the aftermath is described. It looked, it looked like a tornado had went through because the trees were all like totally decimated from just the artillery like there was men that were killed by falling tree limbs in this battle it's absolutely horrible um there's one story i did want to mention and that's that of whl wallace who was left for dead by some artillery by his men because he'd been shot through the eye i think it was and he's severely wounded well they find him i think on the 7th or the 8th and they take him to cherry house which is grant's headquarters and his wife finds out he's there his wife actually was at this battle helping care for the wounded so she finds out he's there and he's unconscious and she goes in and she holds his hand and he wakes up and for a few days after whl wallace rallies back but then he takes a turn for the worse and just before he dies he says to his wife i shall see you in heaven and he 
he passes away and he's one of the ones that like he made that stand with his men at the hornet's nest to buy time him and prentice bought time for grant like if they had not made that it was basically distracting you know bragg was the one doing the attacks there in the confederate side it was basically distracting them so grant could form his men into a line i think it was the first experience that this was going to be a real total war this was going to be it and it's probably where, you know, Sherman got the idea later on of what it was going to take to win this. That yeah. this wasn't going to be a situation like that guy in Bull Run said. You can sop up all the blood with a handkerchief for this. This is how it's going to be. It was something that was going to be real. And that's why it's important that as these battles go on, you study the, the psychology of these and how it was going to go. And it's why McClellan was doing so much to, to support and train his guys in the mm-hmm. East to try to minimize the death. Because I think they realized after Shiloh, everything changed. I think I think the whole mentality of this war changed at Shiloh. Yeah, it, it did. It was just, I think, and it changed on both sides too. You know, like you have somebody like Claiborne who in his report, he full on blames Braxton Bragg. And I think think Bragg was probably in his head for the rest of the war with shit this guy fucked me up once like you know with this order and like Claiborne was not one to ever question he questioned he was like you want me to do what where okay uh, Claiborne does it though like because he's he never just dis- the one thing about Claiborne he never disobeyed orders but the men are absolutely annihilated like he starts off with 2700 and then he's only got 800 the morning of the 7th and then by the end of the day he's left with like I think it's just over 80 troops or something like that absolutely just horrific but the one thing that that he does after this is he goes back and he tries to think well what could we have done because he his troops are getting pounded by that artillery what could we have done so this is where the sharpshooters come in and claiborne actually has sharpshooters in his brigade um after this battle because he recognizes that if they had sharpshooters in their skirmish line as they advance they could take out the artillerists so he chooses five best men from i think each regiment i hope i'm getting that right to form this kind of special brigade that would be just sharpshooters and not only is this you know done for you know he's thinking this could help against artillery and all that when we're advancing. But the one thing that it did do is it boosted morale because the men would have competitions to see who was the best shot. So it's really interesting how he, I found that aspect really interesting. And he went around and he talked to each of like his subordinates about what do you think about this? Like, could this work? That's where he came up with the idea for these sharpshooters. We saw the North too with Hiram Burdan who would come later on. Mm -hmm. And so that's, it's a big part of it. But I think at the end of the day, what what Shiloh is going to do, it's going to, like I said, it's going to prove this war is going to go on. It's going to show the military might of the North. It's going to prove that the South needs to win this war by just killing the will. And seeing the newspaper headlines about wanting to get rid of Grant and shock the carnage was probably something that was music their ears because it was something that in that direction. But again, a lot of stuff for all the success the Union was having, you know, the, the Rebs were having in the East, the West was a mess. It really, really was. It's funny how you have an exact opposite. It's like yeah, 180 on both sides. It's not really looked at just like today. Like the West is, I mean, I think it's starting to be looked at even more, but it's not something like, you know, you hear, I think people get into the Eastern theater before they get into the Western theater. But then when you look at the Western theater, Theater, you're seeing like wow this was like you know such carnage and again it's geography's playing a role right like news isn't reaching it as fast it's further away so it's far further removed from the seat of the government in the north you know just just different things like that are playing into it but i really think like this is where the war is starting to be decided in the western theater i think at this point i think i think it was i think for all the press that the war gets in the east with mcclellan and 
mm-hmm. eventually Meade and those guys. The, the West is where this thing was won or lost. It really, really was. Capturing the Tennessee and then ultimately the Mississippi River and then going through Vicksburg and then taking Atlanta. That, that was the war. That was it. All the stuff in the East is window dressing. I love my Gettysburg. Don't get me wrong. Oh, I do too. But, and I mean, Antietam's uh, important know, too for the emancipation. That's kind of like the turning point in the war. Like East and West, like all battles matter, as we say. But in the West, you have these victories that I think are a little bit more of the strategic to really break the Confederacy because this is where the in like kind of the infrastructure is like this is where there's lots of trains here this is where they're getting supplies they lose the Mississippi mm-hmm. River eventually you know it's all all this east and western theater are all factoring into this puzzle that is the Civil War and you have to have all those pieces for it to make sense because, no question no because question. we've seen in our discussion about like the march to the sea how that starts affecting Lee in the east because slowly very slowly he's unable to get supplies you know because mm-hmm. the railroads are being ripped up yep and that's going to be it too i mean you're, you're going to have taken down those 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 important railroads we talked about yeah. why sherman's going to focus on those railroads in the north carolina campaign because he the experiences he had in the west so yeah. he he knew the way to stop the south was to deny them their ability to deliver weaponry and food and that's ultimately what's what's going to do them lee and johnston mm-hmm. and all of them is not so much beating them down killing every soldier it's denying them their resources, which is exactly what they did. And I think, I think, which the lesson from Shiloh is it just showed them that total war was going to be necessary. This yeah. wasn't going to be, we did our best, the Rebs, let's, let's walk away. They, they knew they were in for the long haul. So I think that's a good discussion. I think, I think, I think Shiloh is fun to talk about. It's very appropriate being mm-hmm. today as we record this, the first day of the Battle of Shiloh's anniversary. 159 yeah, years 159. Later, right? Okay. I did the math this morning. Wow. Geez. Counted you, on my fingers. And you kept your shoes on, which is impressive. Never tough, you know. I did. <laughs> but anyway, so um, we'll, so we'll, we'll leave it there. We'll talk more about um, some of these, these campaigns coming up next time. So what's, yep. uh, what's next? So next week we are talking part two of secession. So we're going to be talking about Fort Sumter. And then the week after that, we are going to be talking about uh, the catch um or the when jeff davis his running away and his uh capture we're gonna be talking about that you mean his escape yes escape i'm sorry <laughs> Fuck. Jesus. we're gonna talk about the catch the catch oh, they said the runaway Mayer, we can talk about him. yeah right field yankees orioles from 1997 are we talking about okay. anyway so we'll talk about that so we got the live coming up on Saturday, yep. and um, we're going to start thinking long-term about our next book club, which mm-hmm. is coming up in March. We'll talk about that. Yeah. Round tables around the corner. A couple of weeks, we'll talk about yep. that. We'll drop it here, and we'll head off to some big things coming up down the road. Yep. All of our episodes are listed on the website. You yep. can go on to Cape Cod. Cape Cod. Wow, I did it for the first time forever. Wow. <laughs> oh, my God. You haven't done that in a long time. I got the shirt on today. Okay. <laughs> we'll just edit um, that one civil, out. <laughs> you can see Mary put all the episodes in for the next 87 years in there. So if you want to see what we're going to be talking about in 2048, we'll talk about that. Today we're talking about Vicksburg. You know. We talked about <laughs> that last week, fucker. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll talk we got a lot of stuff a lot of fun stuff coming down the road so yeah. um hopefully we'll join our live again on saturday hope you have a good time um hopefully we have um about a million people on the live <laughs> just and um get that hold on so, to your butts hold on to your butts we'll talk we'll talk about that so i want someone to and, say that in a creole accent like Beauregard would have oh my gosh just so stupid stupid things we do but i think we did i think we did justice very we did shallow very good justice these yeah. last two weeks i I think we did i think it's 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 
I don't want to say it's a fun story to talk about, but it's an important story to talk about. And I think it's one that everybody should study because it makes a lot more sense. Just because it didn't happen east of the Mississippi doesn't mean it didn't happen. And yeah, I think, but is. this is one I think people study. This is one that a lot of people, it's on that national mindset. It of is. Shiloh. Yeah. It's not like, you, you know, know, if you say Shiloh, a lot of people know what that is, but not if you say Chickamauga or Chattanooga, there's not as much known about those battles. But I think when it comes to like the effect of morale, Shiloh is up there with Antietam for what mm-hmm. it did. You know, Antietam had the photographs, but then Antietam's also got the emancipation with it. But then Shiloh is just like the absolute carnage. And, and you know, a lot of it is the soldiers writing home, talking about what they've seen as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, you know, they, they went through a lot there. You know, they, the Union soldiers didn't eat for like a week after the battle. Yeah. Because the supplies couldn't get through. Couldn't get through. It was so. Anyway, so we will drop it here. We'll have a good time. So Mary, again, pleasure all yours and we will look forward to talking to you soon so anybody thanks for listening we appreciate the support as always and we look forward to seeing you on the live on saturday so signing off from pittsburgh landing tennessee not really but we can pretend we look forward to talking to you um on the other side yeah see you guys later and thanks for all your support Peace the hell out see y'all later bye 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 <laughs>